Good morning. You know, besides the resurrection, there's only one miracle that Jesus performed that's mentioned in all four Gospels. Gospels being Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. There's only one miracle that all four authors mention. It is Jesus feeding the 5,000. If you've got any type of background in church as a story, you're probably somewhat familiar of, even vaguely familiar possibly. Even, even much of non-Christians have probably heard about this story. I think part of the reason for that is, out of all the miracles, this is one that is at mass scale. We're talking, what we're going to learn today is that the, the story is often called Jesus Feeds the 5,000. But what we see in the text is that it, it actually says 5,000 men, meaning it's not counting the women and children. And, and, and some scholars believe maybe it should be called Jesus Feeds the 20,000 or up to 20,000. And so I think it's important to note no other miracle we really see, again, other than the resurrection and the work of Christ on the cross, really affected such a large group of people in one time. You know, I think a lot of times we see, we may think of these stories because maybe we learned it as a kid and we think, this is a kid's story. Like, what's applicable to me on this? I think the reality is, it's so important in the life of Jesus that all four gospel writers said, this has to be included. And remember, Jesus, or John said, if they recorded everything Jesus did, the world couldn't, couldn't contain all those books. Yet they all included this story. I think it tells us how vital it is for us to know and study. I think there's a lot we can take away for our lives, a lot of practical things in this story. A lot of also, but I think most importantly, I think there is a lot we take away about Jesus. I think we're going to learn God. He is the God of making what seems impossible possible. So if you're new to our church, basically what we do is we pick a book of the Bible and we go through it. Once we're done with that book, we'll go through with the next one. Right now we're going through two simultaneously. Uh, we're going through John and Romans. Today we're in John, and then next week in Romans. We've come to John chapter 6. And if you've got your Bibles, it's John chapter 6, 1 through 15. And what a lot of scholars believe is that between John chapter 5 and John chapter 6, at least six months of time has passed. And so let's, we come to verse 1. And it says, After this, Jesus went away to the other side of the Sea of Galilee, which is the Sea of Tiberias. And a large crowd was following him, because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. Jesus went up on the mountain, and there he sat down with the disciples. And now the Passover, the Feast of the Jews, was at hand. So we see a large crowd is following Jesus. You know, I, the one thing that I've probably seen on social media a lot over the last two months is Taylor Swift is on a world tour. And I have seen so many people post on Facebook pictures on whatever. Of, they went to the concert and it is a massive crowd. So massive that one night I was looking and I'm thinking, man, there's like 60,000 people there. She's charging 80 bucks a ticket, which is probably low. How much is she bringing in in one night? But these huge crowds. 
and you've got sporting events this fall. Every NFL stadium is going to have a huge crowd every Sunday. We see political rallies have now become huge crowds. And so there's nothing wrong with huge crowds. But look at this in particular, what John says about verse 2, specifically. It says, And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs he was doing on the sick. Jesus is attracting a large crowd, just like if somebody was doing these miracles today, they would attract a large crowd. But what it says, what John says is, they're following him because of what he's doing, not necessarily because of what he's saying, of who he is. It's become a show. And I think this is good for our, our church to remember. You know, the last year, our church has probably grown by 100 people over the last year. And we're going to a new location in a very visible spot. I think this is a good reminder for us, all, every church member, every ministry leader, that in, in our world's eyes, especially in America, a crowd is success. It's the win. If you have a crowd, you get rich. If you have a crowd, you get the notoriety. But in God's eyes, we see that's not necessarily what it's all about. You see, our win, and this is so important for us to know, is not necessarily the crowd. And I think if it was, I don't think John makes this distinction. I don't think John says why there's the crowd. Now, we also have to recognize this. The crowd represents people. The crowd we see in the other. Remember, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John all wrote about this story. We see in some of the other accounts, it says Jesus had compassion on the crowd and spent the day healing the sick. So it said, I think one account, maybe Matthew says he saw the crowd as a sheep without a shepherd. So we want as many people to hear about Jesus. And I can promise you we're going to work like crazy and pray like crazy for that to happen. But it's important to remember that the crowd in itself is not the touchdown. And so what is the win per se? It is lives changed for eternity. The win as a church is we, have, we all go through tough times. We have family members that die. We have sickness ourselves. We have bad things that happen. The win is you feel the love of God from each other as brothers and sisters in Christ despite all circumstances. The win is teaching our kids every Sunday about Jesus. The win is putting our neighbors before ourselves. It's, it's working as a church through thick and thin to accomplish God's purposes. The win is seeing people turn to God and relying on Him. And because this is the win, not the crowd, we can move forward freely, with freedom, with, without pressure. See, the win is Jesus and becoming more like Him. And so we come to verse 5. Jesus, lifting up his eyes then, and seeing that a large crowd was coming toward him, Jesus said to Philip, where are we to buy bread so that these people may eat? Jesus knows the answer, but he's asking Philip. It says, he said this to test him, for he himself knew what he would do. Philip answered him, 200 denarii worth of bread would not be enough for each of them to get a little. So 200 denarii worth of bread is not enough to feed them. 
One denarii is about a, a day's worth of wages. So 200, about 200 days worth of wages. And so, you know, the thing that I, I, as I was studying this, that I was thinking about is a lot of times we hear these stories about the disciples and we, we kind of laugh. But the truth is, like, you know, we would, we would do the same thing. And here's the thing that I really noticed. When Philip sees this situation and he sees all these people and he says, we don't, for one, we don't have, they probably didn't have the 200 denarii. Even if they did, he says, that's not enough to feed all these people. Philip's not wrong. Philip is right. A lot of times we see them as stupid. Philip is right. What, he's, what he is saying is true. He could not feed these people. Philip's saying, hey, Jesus, I'm no math wizard here, but we can't make this happen. And think of how much, you know, think of a, a stadium of people, of athletes, of a, a, a sporting event. Think of how many people 20,000 people is. And he's Philip saying, we can't pass it. Here's what Philip, he was right, but he forgot who was on his team. And so here's a couple things to take away from Philip. Why Philip is the question. Why even him in the first place? Because it's one of those things that Philip is not one of the main guys. He's not one of the, in Jesus' inner circle, he's not one of the guys we see mentioned in scripture very often. The question is, why is he in this story? I don't think we can know for sure, but I think we do know this. This event takes place in Bethesda, exactly where Philip is from. Out of all the disciples, he is the one from there and knows the absurdity of this situation. He's the guy from the area and knows this is an impossible situation. And I think it's possible that's why Jesus talks to him. He knows better than everybody. You know, I think we all have our things that we know about. Some of you know about construction. Some of you know uh, about schooling. Some of you know about all different kinds. We all have our areas of focus. I spent you know, a lot of my life playing baseball, watching baseball. And you know, one of the things that when I was growing up, like baseball was culturally very popular. You know, grew up in the steroid era where it was like a huge thing, literally with muscles and culturally. And the now though, baseball culturally has like tanked. If you saw the most popular baseball players today, I bet you 90% of this room wouldn't know any of them. 20 years ago, that would be different. You would have at least heard their name. It's tanked, I think, for several reasons. Our culture has become very um, distracted because of cell phones, and baseball is a slow game that honestly on TV is boring. It's terrible. Can't hardly watch it. And but I think another reason is that I, that I was thinking about is, overall, uh, if you're you know, somewhat familiar, batting averages have been down, strikeouts have been up, which makes the game more boring, which means people aren't going to watch it. And I went to a, a spring training game two years ago and sat right behind home plate. And the first pitch of the game was uh, a left-handed pitcher, first pitch was like 96 mile an hour on the corner, outside corner. And my first thought within seconds of seeing the, the radar on the screen was, well, no wonder they're not hitting anymore. 10, 15 years ago, there was maybe one person on the team, maybe two, that threw 96 mile an hour, and they definitely didn't do that on the first pitch of the game. If you're not familiar, 
you may not realize, you, you may hear 90 miles an hour and 96, and you may think that's only six miles an hour. I can promise you there is a massive difference between 90 miles an hour and hitting 96 miles an hour. And so, but again, that's something me has spent my life with that game, recognize right off the bat of like 96 on the corner. No wonder they're not hitting this. And then Philip, same way. He is from Bethesda. He knows the area. He knows there's not a Ponderosa down the street. He knows, as my wife calls it, Ponderosa. He knows there's not a, a Publix down the street. There's not a Golden Corral. He knows the area. And I think Jesus wanted him to know the impossibility of what they were facing. This is not a situation they could fix. And I ask you this, how many of you today are in a situation you can't fix? Something outside of your control. And so let's continue verse 8. One of his disciples, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, said to him, there is a boy here who has five barley loaves, five loaves of bread, and two fish. But what are they for so many? Again, he's right. He's saying, there's a boy here. He's got five, we've got five loaves of bread. We've got two fish, but we've got 20,000 people. That math don't add up. He's not wrong. And Jesus says, have the people sit down. Now there was much grass in the place. So the men sat down, about 5,000 in number. There we see it again. The men sat down, not including women and children, probably close to 20,000 people. What we learn in some of the other accounts is that God is a God of order. That actually Jesus asked uh, the disciples to sit everyone down in groups of 50 and 100. It's probably how they helped estimate this number. And, but, I, but I want you to think about it. Five loaves of bread, two fish, 20,000 people. This problem is bigger than what they were capable of. This problem is bigger than their resources at the time. But when Jesus is in the equation, what is impossible becomes possible. And so let's read verse 11. It says, Jesus then took the loaves, and when he had given thanks, he distributed them to those who were seated, so also the fish as much as they wanted. And when they had eaten their fill, he told his disciples, Gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. We see in some of the other accounts, Jesus used the disciples to help distribute the food. And I love how it says they had eaten their fill. You know, if we were in this situation and somebody said, Michael, next Saturday, Freedom Bible Church has to feed 20,000 people. My first response would be, who's paying for it and where do we find the cheese and crackers? Because it's just something to hold us over to get out of this situation. But not here. It says they had eaten their fill. They didn't just have enough. They were full. And what kind of fish? Was it salmon? Was it Cracker Barrels fried catfish? What was the bread? Was the bread Outback's bread with the great butter? Was it Sonny's cornbread, which is a dessert? I'll tell you what I think it was. I think it was Red Lobster's biscuits. <laughs> but we don't know, but we know it was enough to get full. And so, verse 13, it continues. They gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves 
left by those who had eaten. When the people saw the sign that he had done, they said, this is indeed the prophet who has come into the world. I think there's several things we can take away from this story. I think one of which is you cannot fake this miracle. This could not have been an illusion, nor could it have been faked. You can't fake feeding 20,000 people. Word would have spread. You know, I think we see a lot of times with modern um, faith healers, they have somebody on stage and they'll say, my back was hurting and now it's better. You touched me, my back is better. That can be faked. You cannot fake feeding 20,000 people. Five loaves and two fish into 20,000 people does not make sense. I heard uh, uh, somebody told me after the first service this story. They said that they had heard somebody said on a podcast one time that Jesus was able to do this because of red tide. That's a lot of fish from red tide for 20,000 people. And this could not have been faked. Only God, this was something only God could do, and it was authenticating Jesus is who he said he was. Like Genesis 1, only God can create something out of nothing. I think the other thing we learn is God's power is limitless. In our hands, five loaves, two fish, doesn't amount to much. In God's hands, it's an abundance for 20,000 people. In our hands, we are limited with resources. In God's, there is no limit. And so I think we must remember that we're not too small. Our situation isn't too hopeless, whatever that is in, in, our, in any of our lives. Our resources aren't too limited for God to work. You know, I think sometimes, and I think I, myself do this, we, we tend to doubt that God wants to meet our needs. And, you know, what if we live saying, God, I believe you can meet my need, but what I think I need may not be what's best for me. You know, I heard one pastor, Stephen Lawson, said, God, meet my needs, not my greeds. I think that's a good way to look at it. A lot of you will know this verse, Philippians 4.19. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I think this story is a situation Jesus is teaching these guys do not look at yourselves, do not look at your resources, but look to me on what I can provide. I think Jesus is teaching these guys this now because they are going to need it. He's, he, he's, gonna, he's not going to always be there for them, and they're going to have to rely on him to provide because they're going to be on their own. And so I think it, that's good to know for us. God's solution may not be obvious to us, and in fact, it probably won't be obvious to us. But so, and I say that because how many of us, like I said earlier, are trying to fix things on our own? You're trying to fix marriage, uh, kids, work, whatever, on your own. But I think in reality, we should just give it to God and trust Him. Verse 13 says, So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves by those who had eaten. See, the disciples are involved in this miracle. They help hand the food out, and they're left with exactly 12 baskets. And I heard on a podcast a week or two ago, they were talking about this, and one of the things they said was, one of the best evidences for, for the, um, 
authenticity of the Bible is that it does not hide the flaws of its main people, the disciples. It does not hide the flaws of some of its main individuals, some of the disciples. And we see them make mistake after mistake. They have literally, remember, they have seen, they have seen Jesus heal people all day long. Said Jesus had compassion on them and healed the sick all day long, and they never stopped to think, maybe we should ask Jesus to create some food here. And so they continue to make mistake after mistake, but yet Jesus still uses them in this miracle. What does this teach us? I think it teaches us God uses sinners and flawed people to accomplish his purpose, to accomplish his will. Man, that excites me for our future as a church, because we're filled with sinners and flawed people. And I think, you know, we have a lot of needs, and we're going to have more, but we should not underestimate what God can do. You know, I think we live in a very non, very secular culture now. Um, And I'm going to say non-spiritual, but we are, just our culture doesn't realize we are. But that, that, by that I mean, it's like our world thinks everything is logic. Everything is, is what I can only see, what I can do. Um, and, and I say that because what I don't want us to be, I don't want us to be unintentionally, subconsciously discipled by the world to start to doubt that God can meet our needs even when it doesn't make sense. And so, if it's God's will, underline, if it's God's will, if it's not God's will, doesn't matter. If it, if it, if it, or shouldn't say doesn't matter, it's a done deal. If it is God's will, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. And if it's not God's will, not going to happen. You know, every time I speak, it's like something happens in my week to help me understand the topic a little bit more. And this week, I'm the failure of the story. The, you know, if you're new to this, you may not know that this miracle, Jesus feeding the the 5,000, actually happens again. We see in other accounts that Jesus, there's a story called Jesus fed the 4,000. Completely separate event. Not the same thing, completely separate. And another incredible miracle, but there's one line that sticks out about this. Remember, These guys have already seen Jesus feed the 5,000. They have seen it one time. They run into the same situation. What what do they do? Matthew 15, 33. His disciples answered, Where could we get enough bread in this remote place to feed such a crowd? They've already seen him do it one time. And they didn't stop to think, Maybe he can do it again. How did they forget? Because they've seen him do it before. You know, this week uh, we were at uh, Lime Tequila, the Mexican place in Port Charlotte. And I was, you know, was, was talking to my wife. I was like, man, I'm, I'm, I'm getting stressed about this building stuff. We, we've got to be out by, you know, September 1. And uh, we, we had been told um, that we could not get an extra month or two in this facility. Months back, we were told that's not an option. And I said, I don't think we're going to be ready, and I don't know what to do. We don't have a good answer, honestly. And she says, well, you know, we've kind of been in this situation before, and it wasn't that long ago. 
And uh, I was like, that's a good point. And now we're actually in a way better situation. At least we're not homeless. It may just not be ready yet. But then Friday, we got confirmation that if we need to stay an extra month or two, we can to get it ready. And I'm telling you, they said no when I asked the first time. And what, what was not possible becomes possible if it's God's will. And let's continue on. Verse 15. This is probably the most important part of the text. Verse 15. Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. They're going to make Jesus a king, not the king of the world. They're looking for political king, completely different. And Jesus says, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. And, and so I think it's good to note, Jesus did not come to be a political king. He, came, he didn't come to be the earthly king of the world. It's not his ultimate goal. John 18 talks about this. This is at the end, Jesus talking to Pilate, said, Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, that I may not be delivered over to the Jews, but my kingdom is not from the world. Then Pilate said to him, so you're a king? And Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. For this purpose I was born, and for this purpose I have come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who is of the truth listens to my voice. And so this is good for us to know because Jesus will not cater to the crowd. No matter how unpopular what he says is, he will not do what the crowd desires. He will do what only he pleases. You see, our world tries to make Jesus into who they want him to be, and that is not how this works. He is the God of the universe who was there at creation. And so his goal was not to be the worldly king. It was not to just satisfy their hunger. I saw one commentary uh, yesterday that said that their point of this text was feed people who are hungry. And I'll be honest, I can name like eight things that are more evident in the text than that, especially considering what Jesus says. And Jesus's point was to set the world free to be the savior of the world, not be the political king. And so there's so much we can take away, but I think the most important thing is it's evidence Jesus said who he was, who he said he was. You know, I think these verses in many ways are the the setup, the appetizer to what's coming later on in John 6. If you know your Bibles well, or if you've looked ahead, you know that John 6, Jesus has an interaction with the Jewish leaders. And here's what he says. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall not thirst. Jesus literally satisfies their physical need and then tells them later on, I'm here for more than that. I'm here to satisfy the spiritual need. It says we learn in the text, Jesus had compassion on them. He healed them. He fed them. But his ultimate goal was to fulfill their spiritual hunger. 
in many ways, I think he's, he's showing the disciples, he's, he's basically showing he's just not giving them a solution to the problem. He's showing them he was the solution to everything. And so how do you close something like this? You know, you look at these verses. How do you say, how do you describe such an incredible miracle? I think there's one verse that came to my mind when I thought of this. It's, it's found in Matthew. It's actually 26, 27, I'll read. It's a story where, you know, the disciples uh, get caught on a boat in the middle of a storm, and they're scared to death, and I don't blame them. I don't like the water either. I get scared out there. Middle of the night, they're scared. There's a storm, and, and they wake up, and they wake Jesus up, and he says, why are you afraid, oh, little faith? And then he rose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and there was a great calm. And the men marveled, saying, here's the line that came to my mind, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey him? This is not just some religious figure. They realize, what sort of man is this that even the winds and the sea obey his words? And so I think to summarize this text, our complete reliance must be on Christ. We take our, our five loaves, our two fish, and we give it to God. Trust he's going to put us exactly where he wants us and provide for our needs. You know, everything we do, whether it's church, work, marriage, relationships, parenting, whatever, we give it to God. You know, I think the second thing is we're going to see, especially as we get the next couple weeks, this is a setup for Jesus to say he is the true bread of life. Whoever comes to him will not hunger or thirst. And I'll end today on the disciples' words at that time. What sort of man is this that even the winds and sea obey him? Let's pray. God, we, uh, we come before you as people that uh, make a lot of mistakes, and they're not always mistakes. Most of the time, we choose them. Um, we're, we're, we're sinners, um, you know, um, flawed. Lord, we need your help. Lord, we try to fix things on our own that are uh, marriages, work, uh, family life, whatever, and the reality is we can't fix them. Lord, we just ask that you help us today understand to rely on you rather than our own knowledge, our own wisdom, whatever. Lord, we use the gifts you gave us, but ultimately we recognize you are the sovereign king of the universe. You're in control of everything. Lord, help us put our trust on you for everything. Lord, when we forget, like the story I said, uh, when we forget, remind us of what you can do and what you have done. And above all, anybody new that doesn't know who you are, Lord, open up their eyes to see this is not about food. This is about you satisfying what's missing, satisfying the hunger that's inside of us for something greater. This is about a Savior coming into the world to save us from our sin. Lord, we just, we just put everything to you. We, we lay it all down, all at your feet. We are um, 
uh, weak, but when we're with you, you make us strong. Lord, just give us confidence and boldness and help us grow more like you. That is the win for us to grow more like you. We ask all that in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and we'll, we'll sing.